Well, like Penny said, my name is Tobias, and I'm an elder here. Um, and it's just a delight for me to get to open up God's Word for us again this morning. Recently, Penny has been preaching a series focusing on the life of Peter. And last week, as we considered Peter's um, overzealous rebuke um, of Jesus in Matthew 16, in truth, I think we were pushed to look beyond his mistake and to reflect on our own misguided notions about who God is and what he's doing, weren't we? And like Peter, who received swift correction from Jesus, when he turned to him and he said, get behind me, Satan, we too, although we probably don't want to admit it, regularly need God to realign us to his purposes, don't we? How often we, in our foolishness and pride, seek to, to fit God into our own plans as if we know what's best, when what we really need in the midst of all our pain and confusion is not to grasp for control, but to retrain our focus off of ourselves and onto the breathtaking glory of the one true God and to listen to what he has to say. Friends, this is precisely what we see going on in the passage this morning. So I invite you to open up your copy of God's word to Matthew 17. We're looking at verses 1 through 13. You can also find it printed in your order of worship. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Mighty God, we bow before you, and we are so thankful for your kind preservation of your word. What a gift it is to your people who are weary travelers, 
oftentimes confused. Oh Lord, we thank you for the direction you provide through your word. And may we submit to it this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So um, my family, like many in this room, I imagine, likes to watch movies together. And for many years now, one that's garnered a lot of repeat viewings is Tangled. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's a retelling of the classic tale of Rapunzel, and yes, it's a Disney princess movie. And for that reason alone, I wish I could say that its popularity in our family is because we have young children and a rather strong female presence in our four daughters. But honestly, that would be misleading. You see, I, I have to admit, I'm a big fan. In fact, I'm the one who watched it twice back-to-back, in the same night, before the rest had even heard of it. And I could probably bust out the lyrics to half the songs right now, but I I won't. (laughs) Yes, for all our sakes. I only mention the movie because as I was thinking about this passage in Matthew, I was reminded of a scene that comes toward its end. So now let me just say spoiler alert. If you haven't seen it, I don't want to ruin it for you, so feel free to cover your ears for a moment. Okay, so, so as the movie approaches its climax, Rapunzel's world has been turned upside down. The man she loves has been wrongfully imprisoned and now faces death. And the life she dreamed of living outside the suffocating walls of her tower seems nothing more than a naive fantasy. And it's at this moment, in the midst of her sadness and confusion, that a glimmer of hope shines forth. As she gazes in her room at the ceiling, the ceiling that she's painted by herself, she perceives the subtly repeated pattern of the sun the symbol of the king's family. And all at once it dawns on her that she's the lost princess, the cherished child of the king, and that a magnificent home awaits. In that one brief but glorious moment, she apprehends with crystal clarity the truth. And in the light of that truth, she musters the courage to face the trials that remain. Friends, this is not unlike the experience of Peter, James, and John in our passage this morning. You see, their expectations have been rocked to the core. Jesus has just revealed to them that the Messiah, the long-expected Davidic king, would not advance by show of military strength. No. Instead, He would play the role of the suffering servant. And what's more, they would have to bear their own crosses. And it's here, in the midst of their confusion, disappointment, and fear, that Jesus, full of wisdom and compassion, pulls them aside, leads them up a high mountain, and shows them his glory. What are we, (laughs) what are we to make of this? What are we to make of the sights and the sounds that they heard with their own ears and saw with their own eyes? 
And how does their experience inform our own understanding of who Jesus is and what he calls us to? Friends, we need to reflect on these questions. And I think uh, the best way for us to do this is to focus our attention on two things in particular, two things that this passage reveals to us. And they are the glory of Jesus and the shape of discipleship. And so let's take up the first one. What does this passage reveal to us regarding the nature of God, of Jesus' glory? I think the first thing that is immediately apparent is that his glory is beautiful. It's resplendent. Here for one brief moment, the humble veil of Jesus' humanity is pulled back. And his eternal glory as the king of kings bursts forth in all its effulgence and overwhelming power. Consider the images used to describe in verse 2. There we read that he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. And later in verse 5 we're told that a bright cloud overshadowed them. Friends, can you imagine what this must have been like for the disciples? How astonishing it must have been for them to witness such a brilliant transformation in one whom they'd just been walking and talking with moments before. Can you imagine? Peter was undone by it. In fact, he was so overcome by it that he responded in verse 4, Lord, it is good for us to be here. But perhaps a more fitting translation would be, Lord, it is beautiful for us to be here. Since the word translated as good is most oftentimes used to describe visual beauty. You see, I think Peter was so captivated by the incandescent beauty of the unfolding scene that although he didn't really know what to say, as the accounts of Mark and Luke remind us, he surely didn't want it to end. And doesn't that make sense? After all, here on this high mountain, these three privileged disciples were sharing a glimpse of the pre-incarnate and heavenly glory of the risen king. It's no wonder that it reminds me of the later vision of our risen Jesus, which John recounts in Revelation 1.16. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But this passage doesn't just underscore the beauty of Jesus' glory. It also reveals to us that it surpasses all others. Take another look at the scene's various elements. Jesus' face shines. They're on a high mountain. The voice of God calls from the midst of the cloud... And having heard his voice, the disciples fall down face, face first to the ground in terror. All of these elements, the light, the cloud, the voice, the mountain, even the disciples' fear, they all work together to frame an unforgettable portrait of the surpassing glory of our Lord. And what it surpasses is made especially evident when we consider the similarities and the differences between this scene and an earlier one in Israel's history, the giving of the law of Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19.9, for example, 
The Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak to you. And later in verse 16, we read that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Even the brilliance of our Lord's face here in Matthew's account, shining like the sun before the eyes of the disciples, recalls the glowing face of Moses in Exodus 34. You remember? But here the difference is striking. You see, unlike Jesus' glory, Moses' glory was merely reflective. Jesus' was innate. And although Moses' glory was a fading glory, Jesus' is from everlasting to everlasting. Paul, commenting on the surpassing glory of Jesus to that of Moses, writes in 2 Corinthians 3.11, For if that which fades away was with glory, talking about Moses, much more that which remains is in glory. Friends, we need to grasp the surpassing nature of the glory of Jesus. Otherwise, we'll we'll, we'll really misunderstand the presence of Moses and Elijah in our passage this morning. You see, Matthew had already hinted at the subservient nature of the old covenant law and prophets in places like Matthew 5, 17 and eleven thirteen, And now here, atop this high mountain, as representatives of both the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah, whose work had always pointed forward to the coming of the Christ, were slowly fading into the background before the incandescent glory of the long-expected Messiah. It reminds me of what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And in part, this is why God interrupts Peter in verse 5. You see, Peter's suggestion to build shelters for all three, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, seems to betray the fact that he hasn't yet grasped the surpassing nature of Jesus. And so the father breaks into the scene. This is my son, he says, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And it's these last three words, listen to him, that are especially instructive regarding the surpassing nature of Jesus' glory. You see, they recall Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.5, that the Lord God would one day raise up a prophet like him and that all would listen to him. Here on this high mountain, framed in celestial light, Jesus is pictured as the prophet, the ultimate fulfillment of Moses' prophecy. How fitting it is then that as the scene draws to a close in verse 8, with the, that all we see is the disciples' gaze fixed on Jesus himself alone. But beyond revealing the transcendent beauty and surpassing nature of his glory, this passage also reminds us that Jesus' glory is intimately connected with suffering, both his own and ours. Consider for a moment 
how his revelation ministered to the pressing needs of his own disciples. Remember, it was just six days earlier, right on the heels of Peter's blessed confession that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God, that Jesus delivered to them the news that he would soon be betrayed, brutalized, and killed. And at this point, Peter pulled Jesus aside and said to him, God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And it's charitable to imagine that Peter responded in this way, solely out of his love and esteem for Jesus. And perhaps that's true. But I can't help thinking that intermingled in this rebuke was a fearful attempt at self-preservation. You see, he seems to have missed entirely the fact that Jesus had not only spoken of his death, he had also spoken of his resurrection on the third day. Nor does he seem to have anticipated Jesus' later promise of eternal reward for those who would deny themselves and follow him. No. Instead, here he seems consumed by thoughts of death and defeat, afraid for himself, his friends, and his Lord. And really, it's not hard to imagine why. You see, in the context of the day, as the noted scholar F.F. Bruce points out, it was more likely than not that when a leader was crucified, some at least of his followers would be crucified too. This puts a very fine point on Jesus' statement that those who would follow him would need to bear their own crosses, doesn't it? And so Jesus, full of compassion, pulled him aside and showed him his glory. As if to say, Peter, rock, think of what you've just confessed and take a look at me. This is who I am. I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, the king eternal in power and glory. You have nothing to fear. And yet this passage also reveals to us that although Jesus as the second person of the Trinity is and forever will be radiant in his glory, nevertheless, his glory as our savior, as the victorious king, was tied to his own suffering. Consider again Peter's suggestion to make three shelters for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. As he beheld the glorious scene unfolding before his eyes, he was so transfixed by its beauty. He wanted to capture it, preserve it. Perhaps if he could do this, the earlier talk of death and defeat could be avoided. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, this was impossible. Indeed, the road to Jerusalem lay ahead, and the terrible work of the cross had yet to be accomplished. And so the father interrupts Peter, saying, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I can't help thinking that that command, listen to him, was aimed especially at Peter, as if the father was saying to him, Peter, be quiet. No more suggestions. Believe what my son has told you about his own suffering and death. 
Don't fight it. It's for your own good. But more than this, it's the father's approval of his son, captured in the words, with whom I am well pleased. That's especially significant regarding the connection between Jesus' glory and his suffering. You see, these words recall the revelation of the suffering servant, first mentioned in Isaiah 42.1, the man whom God called my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. And so here applied to Jesus these words, in whom I am well pleased, set him apart as the suffering servant and underscore the reality that our Lord's ultimate glory would only come by way of the cross. And as they turned to walk back down the mountain, as if to bring this point home to his disciples, Jesus reminded them once again of the necessity of his death, saying in verse 12, so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Friends, this entire passage, with its movement from epiphanic radiance on the mountaintop to earthly reality in the descent to the valley, vividly captures this inextricable link between our Lord's consummated glory and his own suffering. And it reminds me of the beautiful hymn to Jesus we find in Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Christ Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But perhaps you're here today and you're thinking, okay, I see that. I grasp, however imperfectly, the beauty and surpassing nature of the glory of Jesus. And I understand that his ultimate glory as our Savior was always dependent upon his own suffering. But apart from ceaseless praise and adoration, what do I do with it? Where do I go from here? How do I live life daily in light of the glorious portrait we've considered this morning? So I'd like us to explore just a couple of things this passage reveals to us regarding the shape of our discipleship. First, this passage reminds us that the Christian life is lived out not so much in the sublimity of mountaintop experiences, but in the ordinariness of the valley, where the clarity of our vision regarding who Jesus is and what he's done for us and how we're to live in light of it is so oftentimes obscured by the daily difficulties we face. And so this passage calls us, just as it called Peter, James, and John, to quiet ourselves in the midst of our confusion and to meditate on his words. It reminds me of the scene high upon the cliff in C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. Some of you might remember this. Eustace Scrub 
has just been, shall we say, prematurely blown to Narnia by Aslan. And Jill Pole is left alone on the mountaintop in the presence of the gentle yet terrifying lion. And as he prepares her for her own descent from the clifftop and into Narnia, he tasks her with a mission, gives her signs to guide her on her path, and then he says to her, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lie down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things happen to you, let nothing turn you, turn your mind from following the signs. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly. I will not often do so in Narnia. Here on the mountain the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. How brilliantly Lewis captures the necessity of listening and remembering in the midst of confusing circumstances. And I love the way our passage this morning subtly illustrates the disciples listening to Jesus in the midst of their confusion. Consider for a moment the conversation Matthew recounts for us as they make their way back down the mountain. Having received Jesus' command in verse 9, not to mention the vision they just experienced until the Son of Man has risen from the dead, the disciples appear bewildered. Moments ago, They'd been witnesses to Jesus' glorious transfiguration. They'd beheld him in all his splendor and majesty and been given incontrovertible proof that he was indeed the Messiah, the long-expected son of David. But there was a problem. For them, the timing wasn't adding up. You see, they knew the scriptures. They were aware that long ago, the prophet Malachi had foretold in chapter 4, verse 5, that Elijah would return and pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. But if Jesus was the Messiah, how could Malachi's prophecy be true? Elijah hadn't returned ahead of Jesus. He'd only now appeared on the mountaintop. They were confused. And the clarity of their vision of Jesus was in danger of giving way to obscurity in the wake of unmet expectations. But instead of dismissing their doubts, they turned and took them to Jesus. And in the midst of their confusion, Jesus patiently answered them in a way that gave them both confidence in the veracity of God's word and much-needed clarity. He assured them first, in verse 11, that Malachi had spoken the truth that Elijah would indeed precede him, just as he'd promised. But then in verse 12, he clarified their understanding, explaining to them that Elijah wouldn't come as they'd expected in the flesh, but that he'd already come in the ministry of John the Baptist. And of course, this was in accord with what he'd said to them earlier in Matthew eleven fourteen: If you are willing to accept it, John himself, is Elijah who was to come. And although at that time the disciples weren't prepared to accept it, it's clear that they were now. 
Since in verse 13 we read, Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So why were they prepared to accept it at this point? I think it's because they had just beheld the radiance and glory of Jesus. And they were now heeding what the Father had said to them on the mountaintop. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Indeed, now, as they made their way back down into the valley, in the midst of their confusion, they were listening to the words of Jesus. Friends, what about you? Are you in the habit of listening to Jesus? Do you meditate upon his words? In the midst of the hardships you're facing, at work or at home or at school, in the, in the midst of the confusion of ordinary life that threatens to overwhelm your confidence in the glory of Christ and cloud your vision of who he is and what he's done for you, are you turning to him quieting your spirit before him and listening to what he has to say. Friends, we need to learn from the response of the disciples as they descended back into the valley. Indeed, the shape of our discipleship in the midst of all our brokenness and confusion and fear must be marked by heeding the words of the Father spoken on the mountaintop. Listen to him. And secondly, this passage reminds us too that the shape of our discipleship ought to be marked by gentleness and compassion because we're called to imitate our Savior. Indeed, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.1 exhorts us, be imitators of God as beloved children. And in our passage this morning, the gentleness and compassion of Jesus is on full display. <clears throat> Take another look at verse 6 and 7. And consider how gently and compassionately he responds to his disciples. Having just beheld their Lord in all the radiant fullness of his eternal glory, and having heard the voice of the Father booming from the midst of the cloud, the disciples were overwhelmed, and they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And in the midst of their fear, Jesus came to them and touched them, and said, get up, and do not be afraid. It reminds me of his response to the people he miraculously healed in Matthew 8 and 9. And it reminds me, too, of his response to the disciples in Matthew 14, 27, who were overcome with fear as they watched him drawing near to their boat, walking upon the waves. Take courage, he said. It is I. Do not be afraid. Oh, how glorious the gentleness and compassion of our Lord is for those in need. Friends, as imitators of Jesus, our lives ought to be characterized by the same kind of gentleness and compassion, shouldn't they? But this can be a pretty overwhelming thought for us. After all, we're a bit pathetic as disciples, aren't we? How often we fail to treat one another with gentleness and compassion choosing instead to be uncharitable, dismissive, or even cruel. How often in the midst of our own distractedness and self-centeredness, we lose sight of the beautiful portrait Scripture paints for us of our Savior and fail to heed his words and emulate his kindness. 
But you know, the Apostle Peter was really no different than you and I are. Think about how often, even after experiencing the transfiguration of our Lord, he seems to lose sight of who Jesus truly is and what he was calling him to do. In the garden, he didn't watch. He slept. In the courtyard at Jesus' arrest, he didn't confess faith in Jesus. He denied him. In Galatia, as he enjoyed fellowship over a meal, he didn't welcome his Gentile brothers. He shunned them. Yet in all these things, through each and every misstep, the gentleness and compassion of our Lord bore with him in his weakness, sustaining and strengthening his faith, and etching ever more deeply this vision of his glory upon his heart. And this is why Peter, toward the end of his life, long after the event we've been considering this morning had occurred, was able to write with all the confidence of one utterly captivated by the glory of Jesus. The words we find in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Oh, what a precious, precious gift. A vision of the glory of the Lord is for us. May we, like Peter, be utterly and forever captivated by it. And may it be too that we, in the midst of the ordinariness of the valley, encourage one another with gentleness and compassion to meditate upon it and to listen to the words of our Savior, even as we seek to imitate him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we bow before you and we praise you. We thank you, Lord, for our Savior. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the long-expected Son of David, the King of Kings. Lord, thank you for this picture of his glory. May it captivate, captivate us each and every moment. We pray this in the mighty name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.